electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Bonowin Eisen, and Karen Feinerman. Tonight on Fast, we are tracking the after-hours action in shares of Gilead, the stock popping on FDA approval of its coronavirus treatment, Remdesivir. We'll bring you all the details straight ahead. Plus, bonds, banks, and builders, why a big breakout in yields could lead to a big breakdown for one key part of the market. And later, mall madness today in shares of Gap, what the retailer said about the future that sent that stock flying off the rack. But we start off with an earnings alert on Intel. The semi-stock dropping in the after hours after reporting results. Josh Lipton's got all the details. Josh. So, Melissa, I just checked in with CJ Muse over at Evercore. He covers the name, rates Intel a neutral. I wanted his take. CJ's calling this a disappointing report relative to expectations. Says the all-important DCG business disappointed. He's referring there to those higher margin server chips. Revenue came in at $5.9 billion. Street was looking for close to $6.22 billion. Within that unit, CJ's saying it looks like cloud demand is holding up, but enterprise and government, not so much. Bottom line, CJ arguing investor apathy likely to continue because he's saying there's just too many uncertainties here, how to get the manufacturing strategy together, he says, and how much of a competitive risk is AMD. And by the way, another analyst covering Intel also just emailed me about gross margin guidance. Also a problem, he says, that Intel guided 55% that was below his call and below what they had previously told the street with trough margins of 57% expected for next year. Call's just getting started here. We're going to bring you headlines as they come. And by tomorrow, on tomorrow, by the way, on Squawk Alley, tune in for that one. Our own John Ford is going to be speaking with Intel CEO Bob Swan. Melissa, back to you. going to be a lot of questions for Bob, that's for sure. John, thank you. John, uh, Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton, thank you about John Ford interviewing Bob Swan. Um, Tim, I got to go to you. You've been a backer of Intel, and here we are. Uh, I know Closing Bell spoke to Stacey Raskin of Bernstein last hour. Stacey Raskin said, quote, this is the beginning of the bear thesis writ large. Why might Stacey be wrong, or, or have you changed your mind? Well, the manufacturing issues are, are ones that are hanging over this company. But but in short, you know, the stuff that's working for them just didn't work that well in this quarter at a time when you saw a lot of other chip manufacturers have you know, almost record numbers. So data center was down 7 percent, even though data center group was up 15 percent. And the margin issues are, are really disappointing for a company uh, that I think the bar was largely relatively low, although, it, you know, the, the, the data center group business has been a, a flagship and part of the, uh, the you know, the, the Intel model that's been working. So, um, you know, this is very disappointing. Um, I, I think it's an overreaction for a market that right now is, is you know, very, very bearish on Intel. Um, and I think the overall sentiment got worse today. But um, I think sentiment is so low, it didn't take a lot for people to throw it out the window. What are the questions you've got about the quarter, Bonowin? Yeah, well, I really thought I was going to be, you know, somewhat of a positive outlook in terms of sellover flash business, guidance on 7 nanometer. And we've completely pivoted here, and we're talking about what really should have been an uplift for them in terms of PC-related sales. That came in roughly in line. I think it beat by about 1%. And as we have already touched on, the data center-related revenue, that recurring revenue stream, really disappointed. I mean, it's, it's tough 
to see a rosy picture here. I, I've yet to see anything positive in what I've seen so far. Yeah, the expectation for sure going in, Karen, was that PCs uh, would be strong at least. That was a strong business because people were buying personal electronics, laptops and tablets, et cetera. And, and even that was weak for Intel. It, it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't strong enough. But here's something sort of interesting to me. So the street, just looking, I think there were 43 analysts who covered it, 44. 31 or two of them had a neutral or a sell. So they got it right, which is good. The bar was low, though, which is, makes it sort of surprising that the stock is down this much. Uh, it's very cheap on a P.E. basis. But you know what? It really, it really should be cheap. They really seem to have lost their way. That gross margin was disappointing. I like value, but uh, I wouldn't be jumping in here. Yeah. Guy, you want to chime in? Of course, why not? Are you a fan of uh, Cleopatra, Mel? I mention this because in, in literature, in my history books, uh, she was killed by the bite of an asp. And you have to be very careful how you say asp With these the days. That's ASP. Yes. And I mention that because, because average selling prices. I mean, data center was a, it, it was, it was a disaster. I mean, you know, that's a third of their revenue, basically, $6 billion. And if you look at the margins there... I mean, operating margin for the whole company came in at 29.5%. That's down from 35.6% this same quarter last year. And average selling prices for data center, I'm looking at, it's down 14% quarter over quarter and 15% year over year. That's not good, and it's very hard to get that mix right. So the question becomes, is Intel cheap? Yes. Should it be cheap? Yes. Where do you buy it? I think you buy it where it closed in that March low 45 and a half or so. And by the way, that's right in the crosshairs now, Mel. Hmm. Uh, let's get more reaction yeah. to this quarter and uh, bring in Jared Weisfeld, the tech sector specialist at Jefferies. Jared, great to speak with you. Great to get your take on a day like today. Um, what does Bob Swan need to do to help his company find its way? That's a, that's a loaded question. Um, so maybe just taking a step back, I want to hit on the point that Guy was just talking about, because I do think that the ASP, the average selling price um, issue last quarter was was a big problem, right? Across the board, desktops were down 5% sequentially, notebooks down 10% sequentially, and data center, which is the key, because that's really the profit center for this company, was down 14% sequentially. Now, to be fair, part of that was definitely a mix shift as enterprise and government really fell off the cliff in the quarter, down 47% year on year. But you're talking about the data center group, which is what investors are excited about, right? That's levered to all the themes that you want exposure to, whether it's 5G, Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, machine learning, you know, their data centric businesses were down 10% year on year and they just got them down to be 25% year on year into the December quarter. So that mix shift of the business is, is not going where, where it needs to be. So from a bomb swan perspective, I think you need to right the ship. And then there's the broader question of the strategic direction of this company with respect to process technology manufacturing. I mean, manufacturing, that, that was a huge issue last quarter, and it, it looks like it's going to be a huge issue this quarter. And Bob Swan was quoted by Barron's just recently saying that they were still having yield issues on the front end of the fabrication process, Jared. And, I, I'm, you know, at one point, Intel was sort of the, the standard bearer when it came to manufacturing and, and this fabrication process. And here it is now. Is, would it be a good thing or a bad thing if Intel actually outsourced that for good? Yeah, I mean, at this point, I think there are, there's not really going to be a choice for them. Just given the process technology leadership that Taiwan Semiconductor is is taking, which is the world's largest foundry, they're progressing down Moore's law to five nanometer and below with EUV technology, and TSM and uh, Intel is falling behind. So in the slide deck, 
uh, for the Intel presentation this evening. They talked about their commitment to seven nanometer and they're going to use the, the best process technology available to them. So that basically leaves the door open for them to go ahead and uh, and pursue the best process technology that's out there. And that's what AMD did You know, years ago. Uh, they had the vision to shut down their fab footprint and really leverage the, um, the process technology leadership of TSMC. So at this point, uh, time is running out because at this point, AMD continues to gain share. Hey Jared, so it's Tim. Time, so Jared. you just uh, hit quick, out quick. though on on. Tim, go ahead. Sorry. Okay. Um, ultimately, the, the question, Jared, though, is when I look at TSMC and I look at AMD, uh, you know, they're probably, to me, relative to themselves, the other side of the valuation story. I'm just kind of curious. With with TSM is one of the great stories uh, in in technology over the last two years in terms of the share price. Do you still think that there's room for that uh, based upon valuation and and all the the spoils it seemingly has taken from Intel? So, from a TSM perspective, I think the the question is, are they the last man standing in process technology? If, if Intel gives up on process technology from a leading edge manufacturing perspective, which is a loaded question in itself because then there are national security implications, does the US government even let that happen? But assuming that goes down, the, that, goes down that path, um, you know, I have to imagine that investors are going to receive it pretty positively from a TSMC perspective when you think about uh, accreting that multiple, if they really are the, the last manufacturer of, um, of basically being able to progress down Moore's law. So I think it, it becomes you know, a very close monopolistic situation where if Intel leaves, uh, leaves the roadmap, then uh, it's TSM's uh, market share for the taking. Uh, Jared, thanks so much for your time. Uh, quick question. Do you see any... Um in the short term, short to medium term, any additional divestitures or sales of assets to shore up cash or perhaps a strategic acquisition? So, listen, I mean, from an Intel perspective, they just sold the NAND flash uh, business uh, to SK Hynix for $9 billion. And they, uh, they also engaged in an ASR, an accelerated share repurchase, to go ahead and, uh, and, and repurchase their shares. So, you know, if you're Intel, I think the, the message needs to be clear. We need to sort of you know, fix the house before we start acquiring assets that, um, that are looking to help from a strategic perspective. You know, uh, it's, it's going to be tough for Bob Swan and company to start making large acquisitions while their business is, is declining like this. So I think you know, they're, they're focusing on the core. They've already divested the NAND business. Uh, at this point, uh, you know, they're focusing the business on DCG and everything levered to that growth going forward. Uh, I think it becomes tough for them to do an acquisition in the context of uh, where fundamentals are right now. Do you think this is a turnaround story, Jared, uh, turnaround investment, or is it too early to say? So, I mean, if, if you're Intel, the, the, the path should be clear. And listen, Bob Swan is, like, he's no stranger to this, right? He was at eBay for a long time as CFO. And, um, and when you think about everything that he did over there from a value creation perspective, I think the path should be clear. You know, when you think about the strategic options for Intel in terms of thinking about their two main businesses with respect to process technology manufacturing and all of their factory networks and then the design arm, is there something he can do longer term, whether it's a spin or, or anything else to, to help create, create value? So when you think about Intel as, as a turnaround story, you know, it, it, it's certainly possible, but it, it's a long road ahead because they really need to go ahead and, and figure out strategically where they want to be as a company longer term. Jared, thank you. Good speaking you. with you, Jared Weisfeld of Jeff Breeze. Uh, Tim Seymour, what would the question that you, you would have uh, put to Bob Swan on the conference call if you could? 
I, I'd like to know really their vision of manufacturing and where they plan to compete and where they're planning on outsourcing. I, I, I think like sentiment on data center is is tough because it's it's really it's their core and it was weaker than expected in an environment where uh, it could have been better. Although, uh, you know, again, enterprise and government pullback in the current environment, not a huge surprise. Um, so I think people just look at Intel as, as a company that multiple times over the last decade has tried to move to the front of, of the leading edge of innovation, only to find themselves either making bad investments, especially as it went into uh, mobile telephony and, and, and new chips. And now at the core of even the most generic, uh, highly processed chips, um, they, they don't seem to have a game plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to know where they're going with this because data center clearly is not enough. Jared had an interesting thought in terms of the national security um, issue potentially arising if manufacturing were actually outsourced to a company like a Taiwan semiconductor guy. Would that give you solace um, if you held Intel shares and heard that the government basically would put a backstop there or or no? Would that would that make you run even farther away? I mean, it's. Well, that's that's well. In terms of Intel specifically, yes. that's absolutely uh, would would placate and assuage some of the concerns. And a broader issue, though, it gets back to the whole thing we've been talking about: U.S.-China relations. And is that just one more? Um, is it arrow in the quiver of this of this battle we've been fighting? And is that finally? Um, the market finally wake up and be concerned about that. I, you know, I don't know how to answer that because the market clearly hasn't cared one way or another. I'll say quickly in terms of Intel, again, my sense is I don't have it in front of me. AMD is probably higher on the back of this, and they report, I think, on the 27th of this month, which is next week. AMD is, you know, it just con- it continues to illustrate the dominance that AMD's had over Intel for the last couple of years now, and I think that's going to continue. Yep. AMD shares are actually higher by 2.3 percent as we are watching Intel slump uh, down 10 percent right now. Meantime, we are following a developing story on Gilead. Shares are jumping in the after hours after the FDA approved its remdesivir drug for treatment in COVID patients. Let's get to Meg Terrell, who's got the details. Meg. Hi, Melissa. Well, this may seem mainly procedural to a lot of people because, of course, Gilead uh, Gilead's remdesivir was already available under emergency use authorization here in the United States. But the news is that the FDA has granted it full official approval um, here in the U.S. for treatment of COVID-19. Now, it is actually the first drug to get that official approval uh, for treatment of this disease. Um, And it's only indicated for patients who are in the hospital. Uh, Now, this approval was given based on uh, multiple trials, including one from the NIH that showed that remdesivir shortened recovery time uh, by about five days for patients in the hospital. Now, Melissa, it's really interesting that uh, they are getting this full approval today because just last week, week, we saw results from a WHO study that really called into question the benefits of remdesivir, finding that it didn't save lives of hospitalized patients, for example. Steve Seedhouse from Raymond James just putting out a note saying that the approval today is really, quote, the best case for Gilead versus what could have been after we saw the results of that trial. And you're seeing Gilead here up four and a half percent on this news. Melissa? Um, Meg, the the U.S. government had secured a deal, correct, with Gilead for a certain number of of dosages of remdesivir. So um, in terms of the payment, does that trigger the payment? Does it does a payment happen when when those doses are manufactured and distributed? 
I'm not sure how the payment from the government works. Uh, there is some thought that this full approval could make it easier in terms of reimbursement from insurers, uh, for example. But uh, yes, the, the government did secure most of the supply of remdesivir already, and that's actually leading to issues of some shortages um, in European countries, you know, especially as we're seeing surges there. Um, those governments not able to get enough remdesivir, uh, whereas here in the United States, we've actually had extra. Now, whether that will continue to be the case um, as we see surges in the United States as well is another question. Uh, but because we saw that sort of equivocal data coming out of the WHO that really called into question the benefit of remdesivir, it'll be very interesting to watch how much doctors are using this drug going forward. All right, Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell with the latest. Uh, and remember that we spoke to Evercore ISI's um, Rafat Umar, Umar Rafat, excuse me, before, who's the number one ranked institutional investor, biotech analyst. And he addressed the issue of that WHO study and said that he basically thought there were, that that study was problematic. So maybe um, in the scientific community, at least there there is some hope and, and belief in remdesivir still. Karen, uh, you know, all of this, it's the first and only FDA treatment for coronavirus. The stock is up 5 percent, but the stock has been plagued with problems prior to this. Yeah, we've talked a lot about how to play a vaccine or this is a treatment, not a vaccine. But and sort of I'll come to the conclusion, you don't want to really play any of the stocks for that. I think you're trying to get it made with Meg. If the government purchased it, how much does it cost? Who actually pays for it? Does the government, does the, the insurer? I, I'm unclear on that. Still, I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy the stock just for this. And ultimately, I think that hopefully there will be a lot of competition and competition from a vaccine. But really, if you think the treatment is uh, effective, you got to be in, you know, the hotels, the, the cruise lines, the airlines. Um, but uh, I'm not in those yet. Yeah, we've talked about Gilead so many times, Guy, over the years. And at one point, it was probably one of the most promising or regarded as one of the most promising biotech companies because it had a load of cash to spend on potential acquisitions. And that was always the argument. And here we are now. Yeah, and they've been a victim. We've mentioned this a number of times. They've been a victim of their own success. And I don't think the reason to own Gilead is because of this headline, but it's going to provide a bit of a backstop. And if you look, I, th I think the stock traded below 60 today. And if I'm not mistaken, it was probably a multi-year low going back to levels we haven't seen since, I think, 17, 2017, 18. $60 should be support. It's proven to be historically. You can go back and look. It's probably trading 63 now. The problem with Gilead, though, on an M&A front, if you're, if you're considering it, it's a $76 billion market cap company. Nobody's going to buy them, and they're probably not in a position to really make some acquisition. So you're sort of in no man's land here in terms of Gilead. But I do think you can stay long the stock against $60 into earnings next week. I think they report on the 27th as well. All right. Coming up, gapping higher. Shares of the clothing retailer hitting their highest level in nearly 18 months. What is behind this move? You've got to answers right after the break. Plus, charged up options markets prime for some big gains when American Express reports earnings tomorrow. We'll get the action for you when Fast Money returns. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Gap shares topping the tape as it held a big investor conference today. The retailer announcing plans to close another 350 stores in North America over the next three years as it looks to completely exit shopping malls and focus on e-commerce. Gap shares gained more than 13 percent today. Tim, what do you make of this uh, announcement? Well, remember, we've said uh, many times that COVID has accelerated trends that are already going on. Restructuring within within both mall and, and even off mall and for Macy's, uh, lots of restructuring to do. So that that's great news. The fact that by, uh, you know, two years out, they're going to have or three years out, they're going to have 80 percent of their business coming from uh, off mall and digital. Second quarter digital sales. Look, we just came through a very good quarter for them. Digital was up 53 percent. They had raised money in the quarter. They had a billion and four on the balance sheet. They had three billion in a credit line to tap. There's 40 percent short interest in the stock. It, you know, look, I, I think there's more to go here. Uh, if this company's showing a pathway to profitability and to a digital future, like so many other retailers that have been booming as well, this one with that kind of short interest, it goes higher. Yeah, Bono and Gap uh, management said they see a return to profitable growth by 2021. What do you say? Believe that? Yes. Uh, I mean, I do because they've, they've laid out a plan in terms of how to arrive at that profitability. And the key there is digitalization of the retail space. If you think about the fact that flagship stores, or a lot of these retail storefronts are loss leaders anyway, it allows you to kind of shore profitability, expand margins, and use some of that cash to attack some of that debt that they've uh, been piling up on their balance sheet as of late. Yeah. Karen, is this a retailer you believe in? Well, I bought someone to trade it down and sold it at like 15. So uh, clearly I uh, didn't play that one quite right. But um, I think they're trying to do a lot of the right thing. I mean, Athleta was sort of the bright spot. Um, I think it's the right thing to do to try to rationalize their store base, which they're doing. Um, I, don't, I don't know in terms of the underlying brand, Banana Republic and um, a Gap. Are they, how, are they going to be able to reinvigorate it with things like Kanye? Maybe. Maybe we'll see. Hopefully, those they they're able to to actually do that deal. At this level, I don't I don't own it anymore. I'll look at it, but probably not buy it. The thing that's interesting to me is what does this say for the malls if a store like Gap, you know, a chain like Gap says this is the way they want to transform their business. Who else is going to want to do that? And this is just more pressure on the malls. Think about all those leases that are going to be abandoned by the Gap in those malls and what happens to those properties. Um, Guy, you know, for a while now, Gap is worse than Bed Bath & Beyond in terms of the number of coupons and sales they have going. Uh, but Karen had mentioned the interesting thing, and that is the Yeezy Gap partnership, which, you know, those goods are scheduled to go on sale. And I know you have this marked in your calendar, Guy Adami, in the first half of 2021, because you will be first on the line, so to speak, for, for these uh, Yeezy Gap items. Yeezys. 100 percent. I reached out to Ye the other day and asked him if I could get in early on the Yeezys. I think if I'm looking around the corner, I think I see a pair. I mean, I'm all about they're apparently extraordinarily comfortable and I think they have them in my size. So it augurs well for my footwear into the Christmas season. All that said, Tim mentioned short interest. He's 100 percent right. That stock traded almost 48 million shares today. The gap, it typically trades, I want to say, about nine. So you're talking about a company that traded almost six times normal volume. So a lot of those shorts got squeezed. Uh, they're talking about having 10% plus EBIT margins in 2023. 2023, I mean, good for them if they have that kind of visibility. I'm hard-pressed to believe that they do. Uh, maybe there's another, you know, 8 to 10% of upside. Maybe the last few shorts will cover. But I think if you'd enjoyed the ride, you know, and Karen's beating herself up for getting out too early, that was a great trade. And if you've enjoyed it for this amount of time, I'm absolutely telling you to pull 
the ripcord, despite the fact that Ye is the man and Yeezys are very comfortable. <laughs> We've got a lot more ahead here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. A big bond breakout. What it means for banks and builders when we come back. And speaking of bonds, corporate credit seems to be out of sync with the stock market. What's going on and how can you trade it? We'll look for some answers when Fast Money returns. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Shehi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. There is something brewing in the bond market. The 10-year Treasury yield hitting a four-month high. It is now up 22 basis points in just the last 23 days. And that big move could write the tale of two big trades if the trend continues. We're talking about banks as well as housing. Let's start off with the banks. XLF Financials ETF gaining nearly 2% today on the back of that big move higher uh, in the rates. So, uh, Karen, do you think that this... We've often made the point that it shouldn't be just rates the banks trade on. Yet here we are. Right. They do. I mean, they trade as if they're one giant two-year, 10-year spread, and that spread is now wider than it has been in a really long time. But so the three things going on in the banks, one, I think they were too cheap. But what we focused on earnings was net interest margin, which was clearly under pressure, loan growth, and loan loss provisions. So the loan loss wasn't nearly as bad as people feared. The net interest margin wasn't great, uh, but this this will help them, no doubt. So they, they should be higher. I thought they were too cheap before. As to loan growth, that's going to take a little longer. But one other thing I just want to add, last night, both uh, Discover Financial and, and Capital One, both uh, after the close today, both had good earnings driven a lot by good uh, loan loss provision, good credit quality. So that should help the banks as well. Yeah, uh, Bonowin, and certainly that had been a concern. Um, but we are still in a forbearance period for most for many Americans who are having some trouble. So, so maybe the jury's still out a little bit on that. Uh, yes, which is why you still see loan loss provisions at the levels that they that they are overall. But this is precisely why I like the large bulge bracket banks that have commercial and trading operations. You've seen it in previous quarters, the trading, the fee generation, 
um, the deal calendar, all those things have helped to buoy, the, buoy them through the COVID. And now what you're seeing is a 210 spread that bodes well for net interest margin, which is really their core business. So I, I think this is definitely a positive trend, and I would expect this to continue going forward. I, the one caveat is that I think a lot of what we're seeing is on the back of stimulus. So any news that comes pro or against that is going to send a few shock waves to the system. But I, be ready to trade these two ways. In a rising rate environment in which... Uh, the curve is actually steepening, Tim. Does your view on which banks to own change at all? Yeah, you want the ones that, are, that have more leverage or who are weaker players, and, and therefore they're going to benefit more by this net interest margin benefit. So this is absolutely Citibank. Um, uh, but I, 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 I agree with all we've said here. I think the loan loss provision number, these banks were being punished for that two quarters ago. If there was some big secret that they were hiding. Um, I, you know, I think some of what's going on with, with the bond market is truly a better economy. Uh, some of it is, I think, some read on stimulus. Um, and if you look at J.P. Morgan, there's a little bit of cherry picking here, but I think it's, it's OK to do with banks where sentiment's been so bad. J.P. Morgan is flat to the S&P since mid-May. So say all you want, um, but the best bank out there has actually traded sideways to a market that most people would say, I wouldn't mind owning that market. So the fact that it's hanging in there, uh, to me, is uh, through a lot of bad news, tells you it's a stock that you want to own uh, as things get a little bit brighter. All right, let's move on to housing here. We are seeing some weakness in the housing trade as yields creep higher. Um, so does it put this big group at risk in terms of the, uh, the trade here, Guy? Yeah, I think it does. And, you know, we've liked this for a while and it's been right to like them. But you look at two names specifically, look at Toll Brothers and Pulte Homes and Toll Brothers. You go back to the February high. um, I think it was $50 or thereabouts. And obviously everything fell off a cliff from there. But go back to October 8th and look where Toll Brothers uh, traded up to and apparently failed at. You know, the technicians, if Carter Braxton Worth were here, he would say what a tremendous double top we have in both Toll Brothers and Pulte Homes. And I would agree. So, not only does the um, move in interest rates concerning, but where these stocks stop that is also concerning. So if you're long these names, you have to take a long, hard look and say, am I willing to bet against this double top and rates moving higher or should I be taking money off the table? I think you should be taking money off the table. Karen, how do you think about rising rates and some of the ancillary sort of home retail trades that we've been talking about? Home Depot, Lowe's, uh, you know, RH, WSM. Right. Well, they are driven by housing in that, you know, you buy a new house and then you do all the things you want to do to it or you fix up your, the current house. But I think they are also stimulus driven as well. So Lowe's and Home Depot, for example, which I own, I think that's going to be really important to them, more important in the short term than rates. And if rates stay around here, I think that that trade, it's been a great trade. If you back up and look, it's only back down a little bit from the peak, it, a lot of great things are going on that are that are sort of uh, the ballast for this trade. So I still like it. And I think with a stimulus, I think Lowe's and Home Depot will do fine. Same question to you, Tim. Look, uh, existing home sales were at 14 year highs today. So I, I don't know what we're you know, rates have gone up 20 basis points off of all time lows off over a gap lower. Um, you know, the 10 year could go to one and a quarter before this should hurt the housing trade. Let's be clear. Uh, you know, the, the, and the issue with the home builders is supply issues. And we're talking about existing home sales, the velocity of home, home ownership and changing hands and fixing up and lower rates and HELOC loans. Uh, that's not going to end anytime soon. And, and we haven't even gotten into all those secular trends that we talk about that may be going on out of the urban into the regional, you name it. But uh, no, look, uh, I think 
different than owning the home builders than it is some of these home improvement stocks or building materials. Uh, and I think those trades look very, very strong still because the valuations aren't terrible. The home builders, I don't think you need to own here. Um, but to say that the housing market is under pressure, and I don't think you are, and I don't think Guy is, um, I think we're talking about sensitivities here, mm-hmm. but uh, I think we have a way to go on the long end before the housing market really struggles. I think this is heyday time. All right, coming up, mining for gains. The stock has been a fan favorite of one of our traders. We'll tell you what got it surging toward multi-year highs today. And later, Tim is going to have to get on the wait list for his favorite car. We will tell you why and what it could mean for GM stock. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Freeport McLaren rising today on the heels of earnings. The company swinging to a profit as copper sales rose. And copper prices, by the way, trading near 28-month highs thanks to strong demand from China. The metal is often seen as an indicator of economic growth, hence the nickname Dr. Copper. Tim, you've been talking about the resource trade for quite some time. Um, they also raised their forecast for copper, not gold, but, but copper and molybdenum. <laughs> right, molybdenum. Can you say that a thousand times? Uh, fast. Um, so, so the story here is also one just within copper and the copper mining and the mining world overall, but copper specifically supply demand dynamics, lack of infrastructure investment, uh, it, it, totally different story than what's going on in oil and gas. So I actually think you're, you're close enough to copper shortage, certainly all this home building. Uh, but I do think that you see a resurgence in industrial activity and copper prices could go a lot higher. Freeport Max gone through a lot of painful years, uh, including, I think, not a great Mac Moran acquisition. Uh, but the gold exposure and the copper exposure are very important to a balance sheet that's so different than it used to be. Uh, I think these resource trades go higher. U.S. Steel, look at that one. I'm long them both. Um, and there have been bad days, but I think there are better days ahead. Bono, are you on board with resources? Um, I mean, I am. And um, Tim pointed out the balance sheet. I mean, if you look at what their free cash flow burn has been over the last few years, a swing to profitability allows to, to address that. That is a hole that needs to be plugged, and I'm delighted to see them actually attacking that. In ter- from a technical standpoint, Carter would be proud. This thing has made a straight line from 4 to 18, where it is now. Trin is holding strong. I'm on board. Guy, Freeport McMoran was one of those, you know, classic FM names that we've brought back. Son of the time. Back times. in the day. Yeah. Should be over 20, I think. You know, we had, I mean, it's definitely something we've talked about. Cleveland Coast, Freeport, McMoran, U.S. Steel, uh, you know, and the quarter was very good. It is a gold play as well. I want to mention one thing since you brought up molybdenum. Mm-hmm. Um, I want the folks back home to understand that you, Mel, in your line of questioning, which was a tremendous line of questioning, by the way, I think you single handedly took down the molybdenum market about seven or eight years ago. And you're I know you remember earth. that. You're talking no, about rare earths and the Molly Corp CEO. That. that was a long time ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah nice work. But it was we're, a we're great, great interview. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up, Guy. Uh, let's stick with the medals tonight, shall we? Don't <laughs> miss Mad Money tonight. Uh, Jim is sitting down with the CEO of Nucor, the steel company, hired today in the back of its results. Be sure to catch that interview at the top of the hour. Molycorp, by the way, acquired by a SPAC, so it's back. Um, up here next on Fast Money, options traders are betting on a big payout for American Express. When the company reports results tomorrow, we will bring you the trade in later. Fast is trading the vote as we count down to tonight's final presidential debate. The two parts of the market telling two completely different tales as we head into Election Day. We will explain when Fast Money returns.
Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got one more marquee earnings report on deck before the week is over. American Express reporting before the bell tomorrow, and options traders are betting the stock could be on the express train to big gains when the results cross the wire. Bonowin's got the action. Take it away, Bonowin. Thanks, Melissa. So uh, calls outpace puts about one and a half times to one. The open interest is one and a half times one in terms of the puts. So a bit of a mixed signal there from the options. What I will say is that the option volumes are about six and a half times what we typically see. If you take a look at the straddle expiring tomorrow, it's implying a one-day move in either direction of about 3%. Compare that to one and a half to 1.7% average earnings move. And the trade that stuck out to me, 1,500 of the Jan 115, 135 call spreads were bought just over $2, putting your break even at 117.10 or about 13% higher than stock. Now, I think this is a trading position that allows you to take advantage of several catalysts, earnings tomorrow, election, and then pre-positioning of the next earnings move. So this is a longer tenure trade that allows you to trade it, have upside in the space, and you're risking $2 to make about $20, the risk reward, that's why I like the trade. I think it's, been, I think it's about more than just tomorrow's earnings release. All right, Bonowin, thanks for that. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, we are just 12 days away from the presidential election, and there is something happening in the market that could be pointing to trouble ahead. We will explain, and later, an electrified rally, the big news around GM's EV Hummer. That sent those shares into overdrive today. The details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. You are looking live at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee, where in just a few hours' time, President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden will square off in their final debate before the election. And with just 12 days to go, we are starting to hear from some big market players and how they are positioned heading into the vote. Here's what Paul Tudor Jones said earlier today on Squawk Box. The election's obviously a really big deal. It has huge impact on the markets. Uh, I think there's so many things around it that I think there's a lot of false narratives around what will happen uh, in the election uh, in terms of the impact that it's going to have on markets. And it's going to be really interesting to see it play out over the coming over the coming months. We also heard from legendary investor Boaz Weinstein. He is ringing the alarm about the big disconnect that he sees between credit spreads and volatility heading into the election, volatility being high, credit spreads being relatively tame. So what does this mean for your money? Let's bring in Chris White, the CEO of BondClick. Chris, great to see you again. Great to be back, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Why, why do you think that the credit markets are, are not pricing in the volatility that the equity markets see? Because this is exactly what the Fed designed. You know, um, it's interesting that in Boaz's statements, he was talking about the, the disconnect in terms of the historical relationship between the VIX and credit markets occurring in August. That's what you would expect when the Fed starts actually buying corporate bonds in the secondary market in June. So it took a little while, but, you know, this is just a, a natural reaction to there being a buyer in the market that has a blank checkbook. You know, in his statement, he also said, this is his quote, because I, I do want to, he acknowledges that the Fed has been holding this market up and the impact of the Fed being in the market. But he says, if a second wave of infections is even worse than people think, if we have a contested election uh, or even ways that are unknown unknowns, a chance for a very significant move is there. Do you think that the Fed will be in that market to stabilize the market if any of those scenarios come to fruition? 
from everything the Fed's been saying and everything the Fed's been doing, they absolutely will be there. The Fed is looking at the corporate bond market as really being at the heart of the U.S. economy right now. And to keep unemployment rates uh, or to keep unemployment rates low, you've got to keep allowing companies the ability to borrow and borrow cheaply. So the Fed has a lot more bullets in their gun. At this point in time, Melissa, the Fed's only spent about four and a half billion dollars. And clearly they have a lot more ammunition um, that they can commit to keeping the corporate bond market, uh, you know, functioning from a from a liquidity standpoint and from just an overall value standpoint. It's Karen. Thanks for being on. Um, I had a slightly different number, but the point was the same: that the Fed hasn't used very many bullets so far. Do you think if things got rocky, they would step in before they really got bad, or would they wait a little to see how bad it would get? You know, I think that what's really happened to credit markets right now is indicative in your question, where we're not even talking about the fundamentals of underlying companies. We're talking about what the Fed's going to do. And that's really what people have been trading for quite some time right now. It's really difficult to predict what they will do. But from what they've done in the past, every time there's been just a slight hiccup in the market, the Fed starts charging in. And now that they're fully invested in the U.S. secondary corporate bond market, I can just see them continuing to buy bonds the same way the Bank of Japan has continued to buy corporate bonds and the same way the ECB has continued to buy corporate bonds for years. So while I, while I absolutely respect what, what Boaz Weinstein's saying, I think it's very dangerous to play a game of uh, trying to time when credit markets are going to unwind when you have an entity like this doing something that has no historical precedent. So it sounds, Chris, like, like you're saying that there is a disconnect between um, the fundamentals that would typically drive a, a bond trade and what the bonds are trading at. So, so bonds are, are therefore no longer a good clue to investors on the financial health of a company or a sector. Absolutely. I mean, look, a lot of people have made really good money this year being long the, long the corporate bond market, especially if you were a big buyer in March when corporate bonds sold off. But as soon as the Fed said that they would step into the market, we saw the market coming back. And that was without the Fed even spending a dime. You know, there's an old saying in the market, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. I think the upgrade here is the Fed can remain solvent longer than you can remain solvent. So if you're going to try a, an investing strategy in which you're waiting for the Fed to quit, um, that sounds pretty risky to me. Hey, Chris, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. I, I agree. We've spent the last 10 years. We've had a lot of people come on our show um, who said, you know, it's just a matter of time. And, and so this isn't about sounding smart. In fact, I would just turn the other statement back around and just say, so if, if credit spreads are probably tight and don't reflect fundamentals because the Fed is there, does that mean that equity volatility is too high? If credit spreads are tight, um, it means that equities and credit leads the equity market. So for whatever reason, um, shouldn't tighter credit spreads mean that equity markets should be going higher? Well, th this is something that, that it's a longer conversation. Over a decade, we've seen uh, companies use cheap credit to buy stocks, to buy basically their stocks back. And they've been doing that for years. They've had to stop doing that in 2020 or at least pull it back because obviously a lot of companies who are in industries impacted by COVID-19 have to remain solvent. The other thing that's out there, and this is really important, there is a wall of corporate debt that's maturing in the next five years. And normally, uh, without COVID, companies would just be refinancing. But the credit window or the cost of credit is absolutely going to go up for a lot of these companies and in some cases will spike defaults. That's another reason why the Fed's going to be here, I think, in a big way, because it will, it will start to trigger a, a, a massive correction 
if somebody doesn't help these companies borrow and refinance this debt that's coming due. Chris, thank you. Always good to speak with you. Chris White of BondClick. Guy, it's pretty scary stuff that Chris is warning about in terms of that spike in defaults. He, he's talking my language. And, and, you know, Tim mentioned it as well. I mean, the conversation is, yeah, the Fed's there. And we mentioned, remember we talked about Dread Pirate Roberts and from the Princess Bride and how they just basically got by on reputation alone. And, and Chris's point is exactly that. They really haven't had to do anything in the bond market. Just knowing they're there has inflated this asset group, which is fascinating. And, you know, can the Fed stay solvent? I would submit that they're insolvent, but it doesn't matter because if you can create money out of thin air, it's a wonderful game. 29 VIX is either telling you something or, to Tim's point, it's too expensive. Mm -hmm. I'm in the camp that it's trying to tell you something. Coming up, pre-sales surging for GM's upcoming EV Hummer just a day after its unveiling. So is GM the new name to watch in the EV space? We'll debate that next. Sold out. That is right. The new GM Hummer EV is already sold out. The GMC website showing reservations full for the new super truck set to go into production Next fall, we've been talking about this uh, for a while, for days, in fact, Tim, and I guess there is appetite for these Hummers. <laughs> the, the prospects of an EV Hummer's got people worked up, and why shouldn't it? They're going to have 20 EV cars by 2023. Look, if Tesla hit the tape and said they're going to spend $2 billion on an EV factory in Tennessee, what do you think that, that, that market cap would have done? People have given GM no credit as literally did an absolutely zero in EV and autonomous. And meanwhile, this week, you had two major announcements on projects that show this company's not just started, that they've actually been working at this a long time. GM's breaking out. Stock's done nothing for five years. Uh, I think this is great news. It has been an extraordinary move just this week for GM. That's for sure. Time for the final trade. Now, let's go around the horn. Tim, back right at you. So if it's not GM, let's go with Ford. And by the way, a leg to stand on .org, a great charity. Big night, Rocktoberfest tonight. Go Rocktoberfest. Karen. All right. Yeah, so I fixed my light during the break. Hopefully it looks better. We'll see. Um, my final trade talking about the banks, about uh, net interest margin improvement and credit quality, Bank of America. I'm glad you mentioned the light. Have you, has anybody out there noticed that where Karen is, it's still light outside. Where Guy is, it's pitch black outside. Even though they're both based in the tri-state area, Bonoin. <laughs> I've mentioned XHB a few times on the show. Um, keep an eye on that $50 technical level. If it holds, I buy more. If it rolls over, let go of the long. Guy, are you just on a set someplace and you flip the light off in the back when it turns like? No, no, no. Uh, okay. It's just, it's just. It's maybe it's reflecting different. my mood. Although I just heard from. Uh, I just heard from Kanye. He wants to come on the show in a couple weeks. U.S. Bank Corp. headed back to the June high of 43 and a half. Thanks for watching Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.